Well, in Sunday's message on praise in the Psalms, I made a passing comment. Sometimes I make a passing comment and I don't want to return to it. It's one of those foot-in-mouth kind of comments. This isn't one of those. I think I only made this comment in one service, but I do want to return to it tonight. On Sunday, I was in the middle of talking about how praise should be Bible-filled. Our corporate worship should be Bible-filled, not just Bible-formed. And I said that the Psalms model this for us. Even though the Psalms are Bible, they're Bible-filled. I think I said that much in both services. But in one service, I gave a quick example of how the Psalms are Bible-filled. I said, when the Psalms speak of God's love, they often use language from Exodus 34 a seminal, hallmark passage. So if you have a Bible with you tonight, let's get to Exodus 34, and I want to show you that passage and then where that passage goes later on in God's Word. Exodus 34, seminal, hallmark, recurring, watershed passage, whatever you want to call it. Now, you might want to look down in your Bibles before we get to Exodus 34, And see in verse 18 of chapter 33, the chapter before, some familiar stuff if you know this part of God's word. This is where Moses asks God, verse 18 of Exodus 33, please show me your glory. And then next verse, God replies, I will make all my goodness pass. Notice the distinction between glory and goodness. I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will... Proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then, skip to verse 20, he says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So this is the cleft of the rock story. God tucks Moses, I'm sorry, Abraham, in the cleft of the rock, and God passes by with sort of the, the backside, the tail end of his glory, shielding Moses' face. And this is what he says when he passes by. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Remember he said, I will proclaim my name before you. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that's God's full name, (laughs) right? When we lived over in England, we'd run across these rather highbrow blokes who had four, five, six names and Esquire afterwards and, you know, some dads were Sir and that kind of thing. The more names, it seemed like the more important they were. Here's the Lord's name. He's not just Yahweh. He reveals that earlier on. But here he gives the long version of it. Notice there's one statement about God's justice and his judgment in verse 7. He will by no means clear the guilty. He is just. There will be a judgment. But there are five statements about God's mercy in love in verses 6 and 7. Look at each one. 
He is one, a God merciful and gracious. He is two, slow to anger. He is three, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7 says he's keeping steadfast love for thousands. And then the last one, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Now let's give some focused attention to the one at the end of verse 6. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love. 123 times the Psalms talk about God's steadfast love. It's based on a a rich Hebrew word, chesed. It would look like in English, H-E-S-E-D. And it is indeed a rich word. I mean, sometimes people make too much of Hebrew or Greek and think like it's a, sort of like a magic code. There's this, his, you know, this mysterious meaning behind these words. And if you, if you really knew Hebrew or Greek, it would unlock you know, something even better than a da Vinci code. And a lot of times Hebrew words just mean similar to what they got translated into English in your Bibles. But sometimes there's a word that's just, boy, awfully rich and It would take so many words in English to describe it. Proof is that the English translations of this Hebrew word all do it differently. Here's an example. The ESV, which I just read, translates chesed as steadfast love. One word for steadfast love, two words in English. The NIV, boy, it's all over the map on this one. It says sometimes love. It says sometimes loving. It says sometimes unfailing love. It makes it harder to do like a word search in English and see where the word pops up. The New American Standard uses the word loving kindness. It sort of makes up a word. Ron doesn't like the NAS version on this little word, but I do. Not that I know more Hebrew than he does, but I like that it's loving kindness. It's both what he feels and what he does. By the way, I think Ron doesn't like it because it's a made-up English word, not because it's not accurate. And I kind of agree with that. It's, it is a made-up word. It's weird. The King James, the old 1611 King James translated chesed, tender mercies. So again, you can see the softness and yet the goodness, the kindness that's expressed there. Now, a while back, we were in Psalms. We were in Psalm 63 on Sunday morning, uh, one Sunday morning, and I said then that when it says in Psalm 63 that God's loving kindness is better than life, that the Hebrew word means his covenant love, his mercy and his communion with so, his unchanging love. So that's three different ways of describing what it means that it says steadfast love or loving kindness or his tender mercies. Well, I've got a much longer definition for you tonight. Since then, I've been studying it more. And I've collected from several different authoritative sources a giant definition of this great Hebrew word, of God's steadfast love, of his loving kindness. You ready? Chesed is God's gracious character and exceptional commitment to his people. It's an attitude of God which arises out of his relationship with his people. It means that he has bound himself to his people. Chesed is outside the realm of duty, even though a promise to do chesed brings with it the idea of commitment. 
It is not merely an attitude or an emotion. It is an emotion that leads to an activity beneficial to the recipient in the context of a deep and enduring commitment made by the one who is able to render assistance to the other needy party. That is to say, God's chesed is the providential exercise of his power on behalf of the needy people with whom he has established a special relationship. It is a promise and assurance of future help and fellowship that is characterized by permanence, constancy, and reliability. It is primal, elemental, associated with God's love, grace, and compassion. It is rooted in God himself. In short, it is simply who God is. It'd be hard to memorize all that and to pull that up into your brain every time you came across loving kindness or steadfast love in the Bible. But I can think of worse things to do than memorize something like that so that we remember how rich this is. Now, here's how it relates to the Psalms. 24 different times, Psalm th- I'm sorry, Exodus 34, verse 6, is quoted in various ways in the book of Psalms. 24 clear allusions, what we'd call them. An allusion is anything that's a, a quote, but it can be a shorter quote, a, a different length, different kind of quote. And there are so many, most of them, focusing on that phrase, steadfast love and faithfulness. I won't go through all four, all 24 in the book of Psalms, but I want to show you a few. So now go to Psalm 86. Psalm 86. Again, keep in mind there are 24 of, of these kinds of things, which I'm going to show you, let's see, five of in the book of Psalms. 86, 15. Remember what Exodus 34, 6 said? God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, now look at Psalm 89. This is one psalm where we have four different quotations from Exodus 34, 6. The first is in verse 2. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Yeah, they're spread out, but they're there on purpose together. Look at verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Look at verse 24. This is God speaking here. He says, my faithfulness and my steadfast love, two words are reversed here in the order, but same ones. They shall be with him. My name shall his horn be exalted. Verse 33, one more in Psalm 89. Regarding David, God says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
You might think this is coincidence, like, you know, two dating couples who, I don't know, they, they have a magic number, 15, and it keeps popping up all over. Look, 15, oh! Right? Did you ever do that? I didn't either. Um, so it might look like this is just coincidence. These are common words. But, but it's unusual for these to go together like this. And, and if you saw all 24 in the book of Psalms, you could see... This is doing something here. This is putting Bible language from before into this new Bible called the Psalms. And it's not just steadfast love, that's that Hebrew word chesed, but it's also this word faithfulness. Now some translations don't have steadfast love and faithfulness. You have something like loving kindness and truth. You don't want to have truth instead of faithfulness? NAS, I think, has that. So let's imagine that it's truth. Okay, loving kindness and truth. That sounds like it could be two wings on the plane. Loving kindness and truth sort of balances God out, doesn't it? Truth, one wing of the plane. Love is the other. So this is sort of his heavy stuff, hard stuff. This is his soft stuff, loving stuff. And sometimes that's true in God's word. That's one thing we talked about last Sunday is that God is both great and gracious. And greatness in the Psalms means bigness and sometimes scariness. But that's not the way we should understand these two words, loving kindness and truth. They go together much more than that. They're not wings on the plane balancing one another out, but they go together. The better translation is what the ESV has, steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, he's true to his word. His steadfast love is reliable and dependable because he is true. He is truthful. He is faithful. He's unchanging. Now, where else do we see God's word hearken back to Exodus 34, verse 6? Well, if you want to follow along, This is the time where you pick up your Bible and we do what's called sword drill. Anyone grow up in Sunday school doing sword drills? Well, draw swords. You would, you know, the teacher would give a reference and you'd quickly thumb to the reference and the first one who got there uh, got a Bible sticker or something because that's what all kids want. (laughs) So draw swords, Genesis 24, 27. This is the first time steadfast love and faithfulness are mentioned in the Bible. Genesis 24, 27, and get this, it's an unnamed servant who says this to Isaac. Knowing what we're going to see about steadfast love and faithfulness and how this is so rock, bed, important to God's word, it's sort of ironic that the first mention of it comes from this unnamed servant who says to Isaac, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness, To my master, steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, Nehemiah 9.7, draw swords. Nehemiah 9.7 is a place where those two words aren't used, steadfast love and faithfulness, but you'll see it's using all the other parts of Exodus 34, verse 6. Nehemiah 9.17, rather, says, But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. 
And then we could go to all the ones in the Psalms, which we won't do. But go to Isaiah 16. Draw swords. Isaiah 16. Here we see the two pillars of God's goodness to his people. Steadfast love and faithfulness in verse 5. And this one's looking ahead. Isaiah is after the time of David, and yet it talks about his throne being established. It says, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Have you been a Christian for a while? Or if you've just been to a lot of Christmas and Easter services over the years, that might make you think about how the Bible works, that it hints about one to come, one to come. He'll be on the throne of David. A throne established in steadfast love, and he'll sit in faithfulness. And while we're in Isaiah, look at Isaiah 40. This doesn't quote from uh, Exodus 34. But it should remind us that Exodus 33 began with this whole issue of Moses saying, please show me your glory. It was about glory, glory being revealed. So Isaiah 40, verse 3, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Okay? Something's coming. The Lord's coming, and his glory is going to be revealed someday. Hosea, chapter 2, if you can find it. Hosea, it's one of those small prophets in there. Hosea, the prophet, says to Gomer, his unfaithful wife, remember this is a picture of God's love for his people. And Hosea uses Exodus 34 language in his commitment, in his oath to his wife Gomer. He says, I will betroth you to me in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. All right, now the book of Joel. Another small prophet right there in the midst. Joel, chapter 2, verse 13. It's a short one, so just listen if you're not there. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. It doesn't say steadfast love and mercy or steadfast love and faithfulness, but you can see what this is talking about, what it's pointing us back to. Exodus 34, God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. The same thing is said in Jonah 4.2. Once Jonah finally gets what God is up to with the Ninevites, Jonah says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One more in the Old Testament, the book of Micah, Micah 7. And here we'll back up two verses to see God's, well, Micah's marveling of who God is. Verse 18, Micah 7. Micah says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. 
Because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He'll cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Working all up to this. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. Faithfulness and steadfast love. Then you come to the New Testament. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, after the coming of Jesus, John wrote these words. Remember, we saw in Isaiah 16, a throne will be established in steadfast love. The one who sits on it will sit in faithfulness. One day the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And then you come to John 1, 14, and he says, The word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Show me your glory, Moses said. You can't see my glory. I'll tell you about my goodness. I'll tell you my name. name that gets repeated over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. A name that eventually becomes a promise. And then John says, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Guess what? It's hard to to tell in English, but those are basically the same words. You've you've gone from Hebrew to Greek, and that's why you don't have steadfast love and faithfulness. But but scholars think that this this is getting into Exodus 34 stuff. God's glory being shown in the incarnation of Christ. God dwelling in human form in our midst, and it's full of grace. And truth. It's full of loving kindness and faithfulness. In Hebrews chapter 1, the whole book begins with this that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Loving kindness and faithfulness was revealed a variety of ways throughout the Old Covenant, promised in various ways, shown in various ways. Cherished by his people a thousand times, maybe. But now he's spoken to us in his son, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, look at one more, just one more. Hebrews 2, 17. Jesus had to be made like his brothers, like us, like human beings in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Those aren't coincidences. The Bible is telling us something about God's very nature, and it keeps resting all of the promises on this revelation given to Moses about God's very long name. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, often talks about grace and truth. And you might think when you read that in the epistles that he is talking about two wings of the plane. Grace, nice stuff. Truth, the firm stuff. But no. They go together. They go together because because they are hearkening back to Exodus 34, and Paul is saying that God is loving and he is faithful. 
Now, why does any of this matter? Is this just neat Bible mapping, word studies, curiosities? Ooh, look at that. No. This has profound, practical, pastoral implications. Because God's love for us and our apprehension and comprehension of his love for us are neither merely emotional and experiential or mystical, not that, nor are they merely, nor is his love, nor our understanding of his love, merely theoretical and intellectual. Lots at stake here. Tim Keller said this, Knowing God is not an anti-rational, mystical experience. Knowing God occurs when the truth overflows from your mind into your entire being. Knowing God is when the truth you've heard a thousand times becomes experientially real. And you marvel at the miracle of God's love for us. So, we need both. So much rides on the truth of what God has revealed. He's revealed himself in propositions like this. He is loving kindness. He is faithfulness. And we've got to rehearse those truths over and over. We've got to get our eyes on his promises, on his very long name. But it's not supposed to stop there. It's not truth only in rehearsing it. Memorizing it, reading it. But there are Bible verses galore that talk about us feeling it. Feeling it in our blood and guts. Grabbing hold of it. Or better yet, it grabbing hold of us. Truly experiencing it. So listen to how these verses in the New Testament are both rational, and relational. They're, they're both, in a sense, propositions, and yet there's something so experiential about them. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. It's a proposition, and it's, Breathtaking, And so Jesus says, abide in my love. It's experiential. In Romans 5, Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love is poured into us through this funnel of the Holy Spirit. And then the next verse says, for when we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Here's the proof of his love for us. Proposition, something happened in history. A guy died. A guy who was God. He died on our behalf. Died for the ungodly. And yet that should be felt in our hearts. Like it's poured in. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us. And that while we were, yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us or constrains us. Love of Christ, okay, that's historically shown. It's, it's 
articulated in specific ways in God's word. It's demonstrated a variety of ways, especially in the death of Christ. But that love of Christ should constrain us, control, control us, push us in and in towards him. He loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. His love should result in hope and eternal comfort. What kind of love has the Father given to us that we should be called the children of God? 1 John 3, 1, marvels. 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we first loved him, but he loved us. And he gave his son to be propitiation for our sins six verses later just says god is love he is love let me read that thick definition of chesed one more time this is who god is his steadfast love or his loving kindness is god's gracious character and exceptional commitment to his people It's an attitude of God which arises out of his relationship with his people. It means that he's bound himself to his people. Chesed is outside the realm of duty, even though a promise to do chesed brings with it the idea of commitment. It's not merely an attitude or an emotion. It's an emotion that leads to an activity beneficial to the recipient in the context of a deep and enduring commitment made by one who's able to render assistance to the other needy party. That is to say, God's chesed is the providential exercise of his power on behalf of the needy people with whom he's established a special relationship. It's a promise and assurance of future help and fellowship that's characterized by permanence, constancy, and reliability. It is primal. It is elemental. It's associated with God's love and grace and compassion. It's rooted in God himself In short, it is simply who God is. That's what we need to know, and that's what we need to feel in our blood and guts. That's the fight for faith. That's the fight against doubt. That's the fight for joy. That's the fight for assurance. To know that God's love is rooted in himself, not you. It's rooted in his work, not yours. His love then is not precarious, resting on a ledge, teetering, about to fall over. It rests on nothing less than his unchanging nature and his commitment to his own name. He cares about the testimony of his own name in this world. Therefore, he will be faithful. Therefore, his love is steadfast. And his love for us, Christian, his love for us is not sterile. It's tender mercy, like the King James says. It's not theoretical. It's not half-hearted. It's not reluctant. It's not stingy. He has set his love on us, his people, like the way a bridegroom comes out of his chamber. He's promised to do us good with all of his heart and with all of his soul. 
God's love has been promised and demonstrated, repeated and repeated a hundred times, a thousand times in the Old Testament. And his word is filled with the testimony of those who knew his love better than you, better than me. And they say, his loving kindness is better than life. God's love is shown in all his works. His loving kindness is over all his works. You want to see his faithfulness? You're here. He's kept you alive. Of course, if he took you home, it would be a mark of his faithfulness as well. His loving kindness is over all of his works. His loving kindness is over the hard stuff. He's in it. He's proven that his nature is love, and he's shown it supremely in the cross. He's demonstrated the extent of his love, the commitment to his faithfulness, his name. He's shown us how this is the very nature of his being. This is his long name. Shown to us in the cross, Jesus dying on our behalf. No greater love has no man shown that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So why will you doubt? Why will I doubt one ounce? Why would I doubt one, one second? And God's love, praise him, is a gloriously conquering love. If you're saved, you can rejoice that God's love was a conquering love. It not only conquered your sin... It conquered your stubborn will. For a long time, you didn't believe. And then he came calling. You probably heard it once and thought it was stupid. But he came wooing. He has a gloriously conquering love. And he's still doing that, isn't he? He's still faithful to conquer our sin. And conquer our stubborn wills. Faithful is he who will do it. He will also complete it. Now we have his word to tell us all this. We have his spirit at work like a funnel to intimately and mysteriously communicate it to us in our inward being. We have each other to encourage us in his love. And we have this meal which symbolizes the very centerpiece of our hope. It symbolizes the very mark of his love. It's an ugly mark of our sin. It's a glorious mark of his love. This meal symbolizes what was the very incarnation of his loving kindness and his faithfulness.